0: everyone. Uh, in case you don't know me, in case you're a guest, you're just saying hello. My name's Tim. i uh, one of the pastors here at Establish. I'm just fixing my pulpit lectern thing. How about we pray quickly, um, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much that you still speak to us. Thank you that, that your word is powerful, that it shapes us, that it changes us. And we pray and ask humbly that those things happen in a small part or a big part tonight. Amen. I've used this illustration before, but... um. When I do talks, when I prep talks, and I do preaching at other churches and bits and pieces, I often go for a drive and say the talk out loud while I'm driving. And so if you ever see me sort of driving around talking to myself, that's what I'm doing. I'm not going crazy. I'm not sort of going around the band. I'm I'm preparing and practicing my sermon. And funnily enough, I was doing that this morning for this talk that I'm doing right now, and I was driving out sort of Ingedine way, and I stopped in a cafe. I'm not going to say which cafe in Ingadene, but the coffee wasn't amazing, let's be honest. Uh, but I stopped in a certain cafe in Ingadine, kind of in the heart of the belly of Ingedine, the belly of the beast. And um, I was sitting there walking, working on my talk and trying to perfect a few bits and pieces. And the guy came up to me, the guy who works in the coffee shop. I ordered some like, coffee and I ordered some breakfasty bits and pieces. And he sort of said, oh, and, he, and he's trying to make small talk. And if you know me a little bit, you probably know that small talk's not my, not my bag. <laughs> um, anyway, he's making small talk and he says, oh, isn't this weather miserable? And I was thinking, oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, it is kind of miserable. I don't enjoy getting wet every time I sort of get to my car. (laughs) Thanks. Um, But then, anyway, and then he went away. He sort of obviously sort of saw that I wasn't super into having a long, in-depth chat. I was kind of busy. And he went back to make his coffee. This guy was the actual barista in the shop. And then I thought about what he was saying. Uh, This weather's miserable. Isn't it amazing? I think if we had gone back three or four weeks, people would be praying for weather like this. People would be overjoyed if we had this weather three, four, even two months ago. And that happened not only in our own kind of context, but also in Victoria and Queensland and big chunks of our own state, which were basically burning in front of our eyes. And yet, in the space of, what, three weeks, we're saying, that weather makes us miserable. Now, it was just an offhand comment. We don't want to read read too much into it. But isn't it amazing how we kind of locate our happiness in our circumstances so easily? We locate how we're feeling about life, how we're feeling about our experience, how we're feeling about where we're at, even relationally or physically or emotionally in our experience. That's fundamentally what we do. And it even comes across in sort of small, more insignificant things like the weather. And isn't it amazing that we can use a word like miserable to describe something that we would have been overjoyed with not that long ago? It just shows how kind of shallow... And transient and transitional, our idea about what happiness actually is. It's so much rooted in our circumstances, in where we're at, in our experiences. And we see this in our culture, our obsession with experience. We see this in our culture's obsession with physical beauty. We see our, our culture's obsession with things like possessions and wealth. It's very much about where we're at, what we're experiencing in the here and now, and that shuffles the way we feel. It changes the way we actually feel about things. I guess the question we need to really ask ourselves is, how do we actually have lasting and true joy? How do we actually have it? How do we actually achieve lasting and true joy? What's the pathway to joy that actually lasts, that isn't tied to our experiences, but that actually lasts? How do we get it? Um, if you know for, uh, where we've been coming for a church, where we've been going for a church for a little while, you're going to know that we're actually sort of launching a, a new series on Philippians, and a kind of big idea for the whole sort of series is this idea of joy, joy in all of life. It's all over the screen and all that sort of stuff right now. But how do we get it? How, how do we make that not just a theoretical thing that we just sort of throw out, yeah, I'm happy, 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 joy, joy sort of thing? How do we actually get to that point, how do we do it? How do we achieve joy that's not tied to our circumstances and our situation? That is actually something that is internal. Well, Paul would say, the guy who wrote this letter, would say that is actually a real and tangible and achievable thing for those of us who follow Jesus. So it's a real, tangible, achievable thing for us, those of us who follow Jesus. We're going to be spending the next kind of eight weeks in Philippians. Um, I thought it would be really helpful to give a bit of a backdrop of why we're studying Philippians, where Philippians came from, where this little church sort of arose from. So I'm going to jump back to... I don't have a lot of stuff on the screen behind me, by the way. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I'm not actually speaking directly from that passage that Lee read. out. I'm going to be jumping all over. It's only four chapters. uh, But I'm going to be jumping from all over Philippians. But to give you a bit of context in terms of where we're going, we need to go back to where this church came from. We can see that in Acts chapter 15 and 16. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along if you want. I'm going to be skimming over a lot of stuff there's a context in which, this little, in which this little church was planted. We can see in Acts 15, a thing called the Council of Jerusalem happened. Again, I'm skimming over a lot of stuff, but basically the outcome of that council was that when Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are converted, they don't have to become Jews to be Christians. And so that happened, huge thing huge thing. Then Paul, who saw himself as like a converter of Gentile people, went out into the world, and a whole bunch of sort of things happened, a block happened, and he found himself in this place called Philippi, which is what we might call modern Macedon, or Macedonia rather, and this is actually kind of the cusp of Europe. And so this is the beginning of the church of Europe, and now we are kind of, in terms of our own heritage, we are a kind of a European church, so this is very much tied to our own story. My background is European, my my lineage is European, maybe even a lot of people here. But the church in which we stand is kind of a European background church. So it all starts with this movement from what church did in Philippi. And Philippi was a really interesting city. It was a city that was traditionally dominated by the Greeks, but at Paul's time, it was actually controlled by the Romans. And you had these kind of stratas of people. And the Greeks looked down on the Romans, and the Romans looked down on the Greeks. And if you were poor, then you were sort of at the bottom of the social strata. And all that stuff can be seen in different ways in Philippians as we read it through. You know, there's kind of striving, there's a bit of selfishness going on. And Paul went into this city, and what Paul's normal practice was, was to find the synagogue. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. And what he found instead was 10 ladies who were worshipping and reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And he kind of converted this group of ladies, and they became a small house church. And a name you might be familiar with is a lady called Lydia. Now, Lydia was a sort of manufacturer of purple fabric, and for us to go, who cares, purple, I guess go to the shops and buy purple. But in the ancient world, purple was actually associated with power and wealth, and almost like the, the nobility, or the, the sort of empire, or the emperor, rather. And so she was a very well-to-do woman, this lady Lydia, who was kind of the heartbeat of this church, and she funded the church, and she also supported Paul in his mission work. Anyway, he planted this church in Philippi, young, dominated by women at this stage, and Paul's writing this letter probably about 10 years later. So he's writing this letter probably about 10 years after that. The church, he planted this church, and as we read, we're going to see why he's writing it. And this word joy, our focus for this afternoon, is actually a word that comes up in different forms and different ways in 19 sort of different instances, 19 times. 19 times. That's a bit of background for Philippians. Why are we studying it? Well, there it is. But what's the pathway to joy? I've got four ideas, four main things. Now, I've always thought that at established church, a sign of sanctification and growth is using alliteration in your sermons. So I have four R words. Four R words. The first, thanks, Meg. That's a bit of an in-joke. Sorry, if you're a guest, that's a bad in-joke. That's just something that we do. But alliteration is where we use the same letter at the start of each word. So my four R words are this. The first one is relationship. How does Paul find joy? He finds it in a relationship. This is all through the letter. All through the letter of Philippians. I'm going to take us to the first verse. If you could follow along in some capacity, that's great. Otherwise, just listen in. Look what Paul doesn't say. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with all the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and our the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's really important that we pay attention to what He doesn't say there. You might be reading and think, "Oh, that's cool. It's a greeting." But actually, if you read all of other all Paul's letters, he actually follows a bit of a performer, and he also refers to his authority, his position, when he writes. He does that in Corinthians. He does that in the letter to the, the, the church in Thessalonica. He does that to the church in the other places that we can read in the Old in the New Testament. He always refers to his position. He says, I'm an apostle, here are my credentials, therefore listen to me as I rebuke you and as I tell you to pull your pants up and actually do better. He doesn't do that here. He just greets them. It's really quite important because we call rank when we're calling people to account, don't we? If you're just greeting someone, a friend, I don't say, oh, I'm a pastor, you need to do what I say, and I say, hey, man, how you doing, how you going? And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He doesn't use rank. He doesn't actually refer to his credentials. He just greets them as fellow Christians. Just hear the intimacy of what he's saying. And I can even think of my own circumstance as I think about using rank. Um, Some people know here that I actually have another job. I work part-time for this church, and I work part-time for a larger group of churches of which we're a part. And the thing is, I'm I'm a pretty big deal, right? Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty important, it's true. Uh, If you think about a a kind of group of churches, there's kind of two or three people who run it, and I'm one of those two or three people who run our group of churches. And I was having a chat with a good friend of mine, and he was saying, Tim, you need to throw your weight around more. And I'm kind of learning to do that. So, for example, I have this kind of, it's kind of dorky, to be honest, but I have this name tag with my title on it. And I was saying, Tim, you should wear this when you actually meet people in an official capacity or if you visit a church or if you go and preach or if you go and do bits and pieces. You should wear your name tag. And I'm thinking, no why am I going to do that, right? Now, it sounds impressive, but our group of churches is generally, I'm trying to be nice in the way I say this, kind of older, more mature. Um, I'm kind of like the patron saint for Christians over 90. Uh, it feels like... <laughs> And that's kind of where we're at as a fellowship. Now, established is an exception to that, don't get me wrong. I often feel like when I die, people should take my collarbone and take it like a relic to retirement homes or something like that, just to spread the blessing. But I can throw rank around, right? I can say, oh, look at me. Look at my credentials. Look at what I've done. I've been to Bible college. I have this role within this fellowship of churches. And yet, Paul doesn't do that, does he? He could do it. He doesn't do it. Doesn't do it at all. Look at the intimacy of his language. I'm going to take us to 12 of chapter 2, verse 12. Look what he says here, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Dear friends, these aren't strangers to Paul. This is a close, interconnected relationship. Verse 10 of chapter 4, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. We see these words again and again and again. Brothers and sisters, he says that like five times throughout the letter. Love, concern, devotion, partnership. It's a massive theme through Philippians, this intimacy of relationships. So how do we get joy according to Paul? Well, it's clearly through close relationships. It's clearly through close relationships. How do we enjoy that and celebrate that in our own church at establish? I often think that we don't realize how good we have it. And I mean that quite seriously. We grumble and we mumble and we say, you know, this could be better or that could be better. And undoubtedly, it could be better, but we have it really good. I was reminded of that in two ways just this week. So if you don't know established very well, we have things called GCs where we get together and we eat food and we pray and read the Bible and share things with each other. And we had a one on Tuesday night. And I went along and I was just looking around, and there's people in different age groups, there's people different life stages, there's even a little child slash kid slash infant, I'm not really sure, and he's a toddler. <laughs> he was sort of sleeping, but he was talking in the other room. It's just amazing, simple, not big, not sort of flashy. But the relationships that are establish are pretty flipping good, aren't they? The joy, the connection we have with each other. And I was even reminded of that on Thursday. Some of us went to a pub and, you know, we drank and got some food and hung out. It was just cool. People tried to convince me how good camping was. It's never going to (laughs) happen. But it was great. We just hung out. Different life stages, people who are more mature, younger, married, single. We have it pretty good at established. We have it pretty good. I think we echo Paul's letter more than sometimes we want to admit. It's a pathway to joy. What's the second pathway to joy? Second R word, reminding. He reminds this church of who they are. I'm going to go to verse 1 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, depending on the translation reading, I think we're using the NIV, but often what's read or translated in verse 1 as God's holy people is often translated as the word saint. Saint. Now, I don't think of myself as a saint very often. I actually think I'm a broken, sinful, rebellious dude. And yet the Bible actually doesn't really refer to Christians, those of us who are in Christ in that way. It calls us sanctified. Made pure, made holy, renewed in Christ, having identity, having redemption in him. I think of myself as a sinner who sometimes acts like a Christian. That's how I think of myself. And yet the Bible would say, actually, you're a saint. You're pure, made clean by the blood of Jesus, who still struggles with sin. And that's the pathway to joy, understanding who we are in Christ. It undergirds everything Paul says in this letter, the foundation of what he says. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being what? United with Christ. He's reminding them of the basis of their joy. Again, he talks about this uh, later, even in chapter twelve. Uh, sorry, chapter two, of verse twelve. Uh, verse twelve, the second half. He says this: "Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." It doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say earn your salvation. It says work out what you already have. In other words, he's reminding them of what they are and who they are in Christ. It's a strange thing. I don't know if you had a chance to read this through earlier in the, in the week, but we actually read through Philippians in our GCs. And there's this kind of controversy, a really weird thing that comes up in chapter 4. And Paul uses a really interesting language. He calls people who are denying that they're actually purified and sanctified in Christ, he calls them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. And what was happening is they are actually saying, to be a Christian, you actually need to go and do Jewish things. And Paul uses this phrase, dogs, you're a dog. Now, if someone called me a dog, I don't know how I would respond. I'd probably be more amused than offended, to be honest. Like I'd be thinking, like Lassie, or perhaps Goofy, or Pluto. But actually, in the Middle Eastern context, the idea of someone calling someone a dog is so offensive, incredibly offensive. I spent some time in Egypt just about a month ago, two months ago, And dogs have this weird sort of vibe. People are just kind of scared of them. You know, They look at them and they don't even touch them. They're not pets in, in the Middle East in this kind of context. They're actually a really shameful thing. And so when Paul calls someone a dog, he's calling someone almost like the worst of the worst of the worst. You're a shameful, unclean thing is what he's kind of evoking. And the question is, why does he use such phrasing? Well, it's because they're denying who they are in Christ. They're teaching a gospel plus something else. You need this, you need that to be a Christian. No, Paul reminds them again and again and again. The pathway to joy is knowing who you are in Christ, sanctified, made pure by his blood. This sort of undergirds what he says in verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You already have it. Live it out. You have this truth. You are in Christ. Live that out. And that's how we have joy, by reminding, reminding, reminding. Third R, reversing. Reversing. What the heck do I mean? Hopefully I can show you. I'm going to jump to chapter 2. We are going to push into all this stuff in much more detail in the next few weeks. But what's the reversing I'm talking about? Look what it says in chapter 2. This is probably my favorite chunk of the New Testament, BT Dobbs. I love the way it's written. I love the language. I love just the poetry of it. This is from chapter 2, verse 5. And I'll explain what I mean by this idea of reversing. So, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then it talks about how he was exalted and made the name above all names and that we're all going to bow to Jesus. And you see how Jesus actually, through his life and his death and what he achieved on the cross, he's actually reversing the way that power and influence and, and sort of esteem work. It's not the powerful who are actually strong, it's those who are weak. It's those who serve who are the important ones. It's those who give up their lives, who get their lives. See how it's reversed. And ironically, the more we strive for power and identity and influence, the more we actually lose those things. And This is a narrative all the way through the New Testament. I see this even in the Gospel. I'm going to take us to a chunk. This is actually from um, Jesus' own life. From chapter ten, where Jesus is basically saying the same thing in different language. So there's this discussion, and it's amazing how stupid the disciples are. They remind me of me, right? So verse thirty-five from chapter ten, um, you don't have to look this up. But I'm just going to read it out. So then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him, and they said, "Teacher," they said, "We want you to do whatever we ask." And they're saying this to Jesus, right? Oh, just you know, give us some, give us some favors here. We deserve it. Verse thirty-six. What do you want me to do for you? Verse thirty-seven. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus is just saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And of course, they're just so dumb, right? They just say, of course we can. And again, give it, bring it on. And he says, no, you can't do it. And they're just not getting it. And I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 42. And you can just imagine the patience with which Jesus is saying this, right? And so Jesus calls all the disciples together because they're getting upset and they're getting angry. And he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. But Not so with you. Look what he says here. I'll say this slowly. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we've maybe heard this, and this sort of thinking has actually permeated Western culture, but for the original hearers, this would have been like a brick in the head. So countercultural, so opposite of what they thought about, about position, about authority, about getting ahead, about the path to happiness. Jesus is saying, to be great, you need to serve to receive, you need to give up. It's a complete reordering of that whole kind of internal way of thinking about life and relationships and about getting ahead, about persevering, about actually moving up in the world. It's all thrown apart. It's destroyed. It's pulled apart. It reminded me of what happened to my car earlier in the week. I, um, I have a 2000, year 2000 Corolla. It's pretty hot, man. It's a, it's a pretty sweet ride. Um, everyone's impressed when I drive through the streets. Everyone's just Yes, it's a great car. Anyway, I had some friends um, who kind of hotted it up for me, right? So they kind of put in a radio, and they put in this kind of Apple, fancy Apple sort of radio, and they put in some really cool speakers. And get this, I have a reverse mirror on my car now. Isn't that amazing? For a 2,000... I found it amazing. You guys obviously aren't as, aren't as amazed, but I found that amazing. And anyway, they're sitting there in my car, and I'm useless with stuff like that. I was basically holding the soldering iron occasionally and held the light up and just watched them work. I'm absolutely useless. But they're sitting there, and they're pulling stuff out and ripping parts of my car off. And I'm just going, is that like a load-bearing panel? Is that If you take that air conditioning unit out, is that going to stop my car from actually working? And they're sitting there. And, and at one point, they got to my, my boot, and they just started drilling holes in my boot. And I'm thinking, what happens if it rains? The rain's going to come into my into my car. But now, it's all working. It's going actually really well. My whole car has been reshuffled, reordered. It's a much better car than it was before. That's what the gospel does. It reshuffles and reverses and reorders our internal lives so that we think about serving differently. We think about relationships differently. We think about getting ahead differently. What's the pathway to joy? It's not about grasping and seizing and making more of your life and Fitting more into your experience. It's not. It's about serving. It's about becoming selfless. It's about giving up. That's the path to joy that Paul emphasizes. Fourth, fourth R, rebuilding. Rebuilding. What do I mean by that? Rebuilding how we get joy. Look what he says here in verse four of chapter four. It's quite amazing. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say again, rejoice. What a staggering thing to say. What a staggering thing to say. But it only makes sense if Paul is actually rebuilding the way he thinks about joy. It's not about his circumstances. It's not about the things that he's going through. It's not about his suffering. It's about what? It's about his relationship in Christ. Now, we need to understand that Paul is actually in prison. It says this in verse 12 of chapter 1. I'm going to read this through. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, Paul was in a Roman prison, likely waiting for his death. Now, a whole bunch of years ago, there's a, and I don't go into details or anything, but I had occasion to visit a prison probably a bunch of times over the course of about a year, and it was horrible. Like, if you ever go to a jail, they all obviously wear the same clothes. People are really miserable. There's a strange odour because a whole bunch of dudes live in a very confined space. And they actually dress them in such a way, this is prisoners, to kind of deny them their identity because they're easy to control. Now, that's a modern prison, I can only imagine what an ancient Roman prison would have been like. Just the suffering Paul probably endured. Probably wasn't fed well, if at all. The conditions would have been horrible. I can imagine Paul would have suffered incredibly. And yet, he has the audacity to say that his happiness is not in his situation or his circumstances. What's his happiness in? I actually do have this verse on the screen. I think this is kind of the hook of where we can find joy. What does he say in verse 21 of chapter 1? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we can see how Paul kind of has reshaped his whole life and rebuilt his whole definition and understanding of joy on that doesn't matter if he's suffering. Doesn't matter if he's losing out. Doesn't matter if he's in a horrible, dingy Roman cell. For him, life is Christ, and he even kind of explains this later in the chapter: how you know, if I die, that's awesome. I'm going to be with Jesus, and if I live, that's awesome as well because I can keep telling people about Jesus. It's win-win. You see how his whole paradigm of joy is just so different to what maybe you and I experience? The measure by which he measures joy is just different. It's supernatural, isn't it? It's like God and the Spirit has worked something in him that we can yearn for and strive for and pray for. A joy that is not tied to our circumstances and our situation. And I know, I know there's people in this room, people in our church, whose circumstances are pretty horrific. I know that. But do you base your joy on your circumstances? Can you truly say, like Paul, to live is Christ, and to die, to die is gain. To die is gain. How do we find joy? Relationships. Relationships in church with other Christians. We're going to push into this in much more depth in the next couple of weeks. How do we find joy? Reminding ourselves our identity, our purity, our holiness is based in what Jesus has done, not through external rules, not through external regulations, purely in Jesus. How do we find joy? Not by striving for power, not for, by striving for influence, not by striving for more, but by giving up, by serving. How do we find joy? Rebuilding. Rebuilding a whole sense of joy and what that means to us around Jesus. Let me just ground that with an example. I was recently in Edinburgh in Scotland. Amazing place. Oh, I just frothed on it. It was just so cool. I loved it. I loved the history. I loved the people. I loved just the vibe of it. Um, if you know Edinburgh at all, it's kind of like this big sort of hill city. And at the top is a thing called Edinburgh Castle. And so one day, I sort of marched off. It was kind of weather, weather similar. It's really wet and drizzly and windy, and um, probably about 15, 20, 30 degrees colder. Um, anyway, I had my jacket on, and I just sort of ploughed on through, and I walked all the way up to Edinburgh Castle. And apparently, a guy in a shop said this was quite unusual, but there was a massive Scottish flag on the top of Edinburgh Castle. When I say massive, like, I'm talking nearly as big as this jolly stage. Like, it was huge. And I remember looking up at it, and it was flopping around in the wind. This massive blue, you know, the blue sort of cross, blue and white cross. And it just reminded me, well, as I was preparing for this talk, of what living in Christ is like. We're like the flag. We're getting blown away by circumstances, by things that make us you know, feel horrible, by situations out of our control, things that make us want to fly off into the wind. And yet the flagpole is holding us down. And what's the flagpole? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Our joy is not tied to our circumstances. It's tied to our relationship with him. It's a good place to finish. Let me pray. I think Meg's going to lead us through a song or two. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you so much for the challenge that we see in Philippians. Thank you for Paul's example. Thank you that we can expect and can confidently say that in Christ we can achieve a joy that surpasses any of our circumstances. Uh, thank you that you weave suffering in different ways into our life to point us to Christ. And we trust and pray over the next six, seven, eight weeks that you move and work powerfully in us as we push into this amazing letter that Paul wrote. We pray that we actually get transformed to be more like in the image of your son. And we expect and hope that you're going to work that within us yeah, over the next bunch of time. Amen.